tonight. Uh, so if you have your Bibles with, with you, whether they are paper or electronic, and if you have neither, there should be a printout for you. Uh, and if you don't have that, find a neighbor so kind because we're Christians and we share. Uh, find a Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 6. That's Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 5. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, and I'm going to read to 18. It says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they pray to stand and pray, they were, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on street corners that they might be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you in secret. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also, or forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who sees in secret. And your Father, your Father who sees in secret will reward you ultimately in secret. In the word of the Lord. And, and this is a really um, beautiful passage. Jesus has really getting into the nitty gritty of Christian life. Uh, the, the hypocrites that Jesus speaks of really are the Pharisees. He's calling out the religious leaders of, of the synagogues and of, of the Jewish people because they would do exactly that. They would stand in the midst of the church, in the middle of a service, and in, in, an, in a showful way, stand up and make a prayer so that everyone could hear. So everyone would see, and they would make a big announcements in their big, deep voices, and and make some audacious prayer that would get everyone's attention. Or even better, they would go onto the street corners, and they would have someone blow a trumpet, and then they would begin to pray so that everyone see how religious they are. Very much like the giving, right? Where 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 they would have heralds and trumpeters, and they would go before, and they would people would. They would draw attention to themselves, right? That word that we talked about, the, the idea of a theater, putting on a spectacle. And so we, Jesus warns, just as he did about giving, that our prayers should be done in secret. Now, 
clearly Jesus believes that we should pray over others. This isn't just only, this isn't about not praying at all in public. This is about not making a show of public. Because when we come to the altar on Sunday, or when we pray before we start and when we end, all those are public. All you see me, all you hear us. But it's in a way in which you pray, or the heart in which you are praying. Are you praying so that you can be seen and recognized, or are you trying to pray so that God really connects with your heart? Now, as a person whose job it is to pray out loud on a regular basis, I will tell you it's still one of the hardest things I have to do on a regular basis. Whether it be one-on-one with someone, or in a group, or in front of a larger crowd, Wanting to sound right is something we all struggle with. There's no one in this room who who wants to sound foolish, correct? Right? All of us want to sound at least semi-intelligent when we speak. Some of us are from different regions of the country, and down south we use words like reckon and y'all, and we use words in our speech that Maybe those from up north may not use, and you have no idea what you guys are talking about. But praying is the most powerful thing God has given us. And my encouragement and my hope that after tonight, I'm going to give you some some tips and tricks and encouragement that will improve your prayer life. And I'm just going to be honest right now. One of the hardest things that I actually, one of the hardest people I have to pray with is actually my wife. Now, we can pray at dinner, and we can pray and like here, but when it's just she and I and we have to sit and pray and pray together, it is could be one of the most awkward moments of my day. Uh, when we were younger and we would start praying, I, I, we developed this habit of praying right before we went to bed. So we're laying in bed, lights are off, and I would pray. And the next thing you know, yeah. And, and 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 it's a beautiful thing. I love that my wife loves my voice so much. So when we were dating, when we were dating, we would go to this restaurant down at International Mall, and we lived up in Northdale. And I would drive down there and we'd have this beautiful Asian spread of food full of rice and carbs. And we'd start driving back late and she would just kind of, I'd just talk to her about whatever was going on. And she'd just be hushed to sleep. It was a beautiful thing. But it is still, to be honest, a very clunky, awkward moment when we have to sit and pray just together. I can pray over other people. If you're on the prayer team, you know that we pray before every service. I have no problem praying with um, most, but I just want to be honest and real that there's sometimes struggles there. And, and so if you feel like I'm perfect, well, I'm not. And I just wanted to show that to you. But my encouragement to you that it's not necessarily how fluid your words come out. I believe the most important thing about prayer is actually what we say. And when we say it, there are there are times for nine one one prayers. Anyone know what a nine one prayer is? Oh Lord, help me right now, Mister Trooper just pulled me over. Dear Lord Jesus, get me out of this one, right? Or our Lord, I'm running late. Help me get there on time, right? Or, right, all something of that nature, right? 
But that's that we we've all been suspect of that. Where and there are real moments where we need to just cry out to God, saying, "Lord, help me." And there's nothing more that needs to be said. Where because that's what Jesus says: "For your Father already knows what you need before you ask it." Right, and, and there's no need as he talks about the Gentiles. Now, two parts to the Gentiles: the Gentiles were clearly praying to not God. So they were praying to idols. So they, their prayers in and of themselves were empty because they were praying to nothing. And they would just ramble on for hours and hours and hours and hours with just the same senseless words hoping that something would happen. Do you remember the story? I believe it's in 1 Kings and Elijah has been come to the Ahab, King Ahab and charged King Ahab that he and his prophets of Baal are worshiping a non-god and and I don't, I don't remember the exact reference, but it's just kind of coming to mind. And, and so the, the prophets of Baal, there's about 250 of them, and, and they, they come to this place where they make two altars. Elijah has his, and the prophets of Baal have theirs, and he says, you pray for the first half of the day that your god Baal will call down fire from heaven and light your altar. And they proceed to wail and cry. They cut themselves, they bleed, to, to the point where they're exhausted. And Elijah, being a man of great sarcasm, going, well, maybe your God is on vacation, or maybe he's asleep, or maybe he's off relieving himself. And I love the Bible because it's so true. And, 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 and nothing happens. So Baal, and so Elijah says, take three basins of water and fill them multiple times and pour them on top of the altar. And then he prays. And fire falls down from heaven. It laps up all the water. It consumes his altar, and then it leaps over and consumes the altar from the prophets of Baal. And that's the power of prayer. It doesn't have to be intense and wordy. It just has to be heartfelt and sincere. And that's what God is asking for us. And that's what I believe we see here in the Lord's Prayer. I believe, if nothing else, we have a outline for prayer. Depending on your denomination, you may have raised with saying the Lord's Prayer on a regular basis. And it was a part of a your your religious practice where it was part of your morning or your evening or a call to repentance that you would say the Lord's Prayer. And I don't think there's anything wrong with actually saying the Lord's Prayer as it is. I think if you can pray nothing else, pray this prayer. Right? It, it has all the keys and all the structures that we need to talk to God. Number one, it says God is our Father. And God is a Father unlike any other Father. And I think the fact that we call God Father is important because unlike the prophets of Baal, our God is someone. He's not far off. He's not some guy in the sky. He's not some guy with a long beard. He's not some kid with a magnifying glass. No, no, no. Our God wants a loving relationship with you and each and every one of us. That our God loves us so much in a manner that he actually takes on a role of a father. That he wants a father-like relationship with his children. Now, some of us in this room probably had terrible fathers. Now, I'm sorry that you did. But God wants to be the best father ever. Right? Chris Tomlin sang the song, Good, Good Father. And I'm not going to sing it for the sake of not singing. But in those words, we talk about how much we are loved by Him and how much He cherishes us and cares for us. And that is 
and this idea of Father. And then, as we just read over in Matthew chapter 5, that in heaven, it says, it describes the heaven is the throne room of God. And so we recognize it by saying, our Father, who loves us, who is in heaven, who sits in His throne room, hallowed be Thy name. That, the, the word hallowed is a word we do not use in modern English, but it basically means made holy. God's name is holy, but it's a past tense kind of word. It has been done, and because of who God is, He is holy. And His name is holy. And that beautiful phrase that uh, Paul writes, it says, it is the only name by which you can be saved. And so we call out to our Father, and His name is holy, and we ask that through His name, through His name Jesus, His Son Jesus, that we can be saved. And we see Your kingdom come. This is something I don't think we often talk about, but we need to know that there are only two kingdoms in this world. There's God kingdom, God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. In Ephesians 2.2, 2, it says, in which you once walked, following the courses of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's Ephesians 2.2. 2. Right, this kingdom that we live in, right? God is in control, and He has temporarily given power and authority to Satan. This is why we are plagued with suffering and sin. This is why there's wars and rumors of war. This is why there's evil in the world. But God is in control, and we pray that Christ's kingdom come to earth, for it's already been established in heaven, but it can be here with us. There's a reference in 1 Peter that says we are not citizens of this world, but we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And when we begin to think that our citizenship is not in the United States or any other country on the planet Earth, but that we belong to the kingdom of God, our eternal value begins to shift because we think of that as which to come versus that which is. And that's what we look forward to, and that's what we rejoice in. Because then it says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just as we said, that kingdom that's been established, God has put forth His edicts, and He has set forth His plan. And we're asking God that He will bring His will to us, and that in it we might operate. And here's a few scripture references just just for you to hear. You don't, you don't have to turn there, but first one comes in, 1 Thessalonians 5:16 and 17 it says rejoice always pray without ceasing give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you God's will for you is for you to rejoice always to be in an attitude of prayer at all times and give thanks I know some of you are probably in the midst of a storm, a trial, a tribulation, that it is hard to be, yay, God. But just as we talked about a couple weeks ago when we talked about vengeance, the best way to combat evil is with good. So the best way for us to combat the hardships in our life is to give thanks to God because it begins to change our perspective. It helps us think rightly about God in our situations to know that God is in control. I love what 1 John chapter 5 says. 1 John chapter, well it says, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, Little children, 
You are from God and have overcome them. For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And that is why we can rejoice. And then also in 1 John 5.14 he says, And this is the confidence that we have towards him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So when we're praying, and we're praying in accordance to God's will, God answers his prayers. And even in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he writes that it is, we are to pray for all peoples in all circumstances, including rulers and kings and peoples in high places, so that we can live peaceably with all, so that, As Paul writes, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. This is the will of God that we're praying for. We're praying that people will come to know Jesus. Now, the interesting part about asking God to tell others about Jesus is He might use you to do it. So when you begin to pray that way, be willing to respond. As one of my pastors once would tell us, is like, if you are coming with a problem, you better be coming as part of the solution. God operates much the same way. If you're saying, God, your will be done and help save the children in in Syria. I just watched a video about the 150,000 displaced refugees in Turkey and Syria that as they go through another conflict as bombs drop right now that if you say God help me help pray I pray you do something for those children if he says I need you to go the answer is yes cricket silence in here next it says give us this day our daily bread this is a hard one At least something I'm personally working through right now. Because giving us, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. What we're saying is, God, I trust you to be my provider. His Hebrew name was Jehovah Jireh. And if you would like to turn with me all the way back to Genesis chapter 22. This might be a familiar story to to some of you. and, And to some it may not. But I hope you familiarize yourself with this 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 chapter in Genesis 22 because this is when God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And, and and Abraham was an old man when Isaac was born. He was 99 years old. And now it's been about 12 or 13 years since he's been born and so now Moses or Abraham is really old. And God says, "I need you to take your son and sacrifice him to me." And when they go up the mountain and they, they take only wood and nothing else, no ram or anything of that nature, and as he lays him on the altar, Abraham says, the Lord God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And that was verse 8. And then later, the, the, he has placed Isaac on the altar. He's raised the knife to commit the sacrifice, and the Lord says, stop. And then verse 14, Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. Now, if you have an NLT version Bible, it says Jehovah Jireh will provide. If you have a King James Bible, it also says Jehovah Jireh. Everyone else says 
the Lord will provide. But that phrase right there is literally Jehovah Jireh, which means in Hebrew, the Lord provides. Are you willing tonight to trust that God will provide? That does not mean that God will buy you a Mercedes Benz. I'm sorry. But I do promise that if we are with a pure heart asking God for His provision, He will provide. Do you need a new car? Car, God will provide. Do you need a better job? God will provide. Do you need peace in your house? God will provide. Do you need a meal? God will provide. That is a promise. But I think sometimes we aren't willing to ask or we've set ourselves up that God's not going to respond. Some years ago, I wrote a blog that says, God doesn't want you to shop at Sam's Club. The premise was, if you can buy 50 pounds of potatoes and 5 gallons of ketchup, why do you need God to provide anything? Just saying. So, trust God to provide. It's a true story. Next it says, forgive us our debts. So flipping back to the New Testament, going all the way to Romans chapter 3. This is salvation in a, in a paragraph. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21 through 25. But now the righteousness of God has been, has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So how does righteousness of God come? Through faith in Jesus Christ. For there is no distinction. Right? Paul was talking to a group of people that were predominantly Jewish in heritage and they thought that the Gentiles could not be saved. But God makes no distinction. Male or female, black or white, they are all precious in His sight. God loves the little children of the world. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. Wait, we've all sinned. So we're justified how? We're justified by the grace as a gift. It means it's not earned. It's not merit-based. It's not some kind of works. You didn't pay for it. You didn't put on layaway. It was a free gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, for whom God put forward as a propitiation. So words only used three times in the Bible. And it means the, the blood sacrifice that atones sin. And the only way for sins to be forgiven once and for all was through the precious gift of Jesus. To be received by faith. This was to show that God is righteous because in His divine forbearance He has passed over our former sins. Which means the forbearance is... It, it, it's, just imagine you're driving a road. You take the same way to road road to work every day and you pass the same trooper every day and he clocks you doing 15 miles over the speed limit every day and he doesn't pull you over. That's forbearance. Right? And that that God, we have sinned after, we have made sin after sin and we've committed an offense against God over and over and over and over again. But God, through his forbearance, has not brought permanent judgment upon us without giving us the opportunity to know Jesus. Amen. And it says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So in Colossians chapter 3, if you want to turn there, verse 13, it says, Bearing with one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must 
forgive. If we are unwilling to forgive someone, it could be a reflection of our our own unforgiveness. That, that we are not walking in the forgiveness that God has given us. That, because ultimately, if, God, if we have sinned much, there, Jesus tells the story of this. There was two men with great debts. One had five, owed 500 talents, the other owed 50. The one with 500 went to his master, pled for his life, and the, the master covered over his great debt. And then the one who was forgiven his debt went to someone who owed him 50 and said, throw, and threw him into prison. Right? The, the man who, who just, he just couldn't embrace that forgiveness because the right thing he should have done was in his forgiveness gone and been willing to forgive someone else. So your Christian faith should resemble a life that's willing to forgive. To be reconciled. Now, will everyone reconcile with you? No. Should you forget about the offense committed? No. But if you're holding that as a, as a grudge or a means of bitterness or hatred towards someone, let's forgive. For that is what we're called to do. Lastly, the prayer ends and lead us not into temptation. We all face temptations, every single one of us. No one in this room is immune or exempt. But Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says, no, tempta- no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will let you be tempted beyond your ability. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with every temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. When I was in youth ministry and, and pornography became something that was rampant on the internet, I, I would tell the youth that God put an, the exit button in that upper right hand corner for a purpose. We, we, in every situation, are given an opportunity to escape, to close, to go away. The, the Bible is clear that we are to fight certain temptations, but we are to flee sexual immorality. But ultimately, through that temptation, through that struggle, through that season where maybe it's more comfortable to lie, or maybe we're willing to steal, or maybe we're willing to just continue to hold that grudge or to seek vengeance on our own, God is not leading us in temptation. But God will also give us the means to escape when tempted. And lastly, as I said before, it says, deliver us from evil. And that verse from 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We do not have to succumb to the temptations upon us. We do not have to give in to the, the struggles or the concerns that are about us. We can truly know that Jesus has overcome. I, I don't remember the exact reference, but I know it's uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians, it talks about that in Christ is the victory. That, that through Christ and in Him, we can have victory in this life. So if you are struggling in temptation, if you're struggling with the sin right now, and you need victory, I promise you in the name of Jesus, He will give it to you. you but are you asking for it? Are you, are you relying on Him? Are you looking for those means of escape that will allow you to get away instead of be entrenched in.
And that's the beauty of the Lord's Prayer. Right? It allows us to know who God is and how holy He is. And it reminds us of our kingdom and that He has a will that we can be a part of. That He will provide for us. That He will forgive us. And that He encourages us to forgive others. That He will free us from temptation and deliver us from evil. The great Charles Spurgeon, if if you're familiar with the name, he was a a man who who taught the Bible uh, very well in the 1800s. He became known as the Prince of Preachers. And he, he said a few things that I'd like to just hit on real quick. There are nine elements that he considered ways that Spurgeon liked to pray, and they go like this. He grappled with God. And he says, an unanswered petition are not unheard. If you're praying for something and you need it, keep praying. doesn't mean that God hasn't heard you, but keep going. He says, ask boldly because you are beloved. Our God not only hears prayers, but He also loves to hear it. It says, hold God to His promises. A true prayer is an echo of the eternal purpose. It says, pray fervently even when you don't feel like it. He makes this quote, he says, We cannot commune with God, who is a consuming fire, if there is no fire in our prayers. Prayer which is filled with doubt, our quest for a refusal. Pray privately. The less prayer is observed on earth, the more it is observed in heaven. Pray patiently. My least favorite way to pray. Pray. Prayer does not move. It says prayer does move the arm that moves the world. And he says this. The act of prayer is blessed. The habit of prayer is more blessed. The spirit of prayer is the most blessed of all. To develop a habit, a spirit of prayer. It says, measure prayer by weight, not length. The shorter, a short prayers, excuse me, short prayers are long enough, not long, not length, but strength is desirable. There's a story real quick of Charles Spurgeon. He would hold these great gatherings and people would come from all around the world to hear him preach and this one woman came to hear him and, and wanted to, to him to pray for her and she just kept missing, kept missing him, kept missing him. Eventually she came and said, you know, uh, Pastor Spurgeon, please pray for me. And he says, of course, my sister, I will. And he says, dear Heavenly Father, your will be done. Amen. And the woman it becomes very frustrated. She's like, that's it? That's all you got? And Pastor Spurgeon says, there's no better prayer than for the will of God to be done. It says, groan your way to God. The essence of prayer lies in the heart drawing near to God. And it can do it without words. That echoes Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27. It says, for when we do not have words to pray, the Holy Spirit prays and groans to too low to be heard. And it says, and then he goes, he who searches the hearts of God intercedes for us. So who better to be praying for us than the Holy Spirit who knows the hearts of God 
and can pray in a way that we cannot. To pray in the Spirit. And it says pray always. Just like it says in 1 Thessalonians. Just keep praying. Be diligent in prayer. Be fervent and the rain will come. So quick word on fasting. That was a beautiful thing on, on prayer, but quick word about fasting. I've often associated fasting with the beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. God has given us natural inclinations. He has given us the desire to be hungry and the desire to be thirsty for a reason. And when we fast, which means we do not take in food or drink, and our stomach begins to cramp and we go, oh, I'm really hungry. Imagine our souls when they long for God. So Psalm 63, verse 1. I don't have time to turn to everything, but we'll, we'll turn to Psalm 63, verse 1. It says, Our God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts after you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 63, verse 1. So that's why I look so much at that passage where it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because it is the, the thirst of our souls and the, the faintness of our flesh when we do not eat or drink that will associate to our souls because in doubt, if you look a couple of verses down, verse 5, so Psalm 63, verse 5, it says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will be blessed with you, with, or with, praise you with joyous lips. Verse 6, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. So the psalmist has gone from being hungry and thirsty to being satisfied spiritually as he sings praises to the Lord, and he thinks on the goodness of God and his physical pain, and that physical discomfort of not eating or drinking. So I do think that you could fast things like social media or sports or going to work or something like that. But ultimately, God, when he calls us to fast, it is to skip meals. It was actually what much tradition, at least in Jesus' day, that Pharisees would fast on Mondays and Thursdays every week. It was a day of fasting. But they would do it just as Jesus described. They would, they would mess up their hair and they would scruff up their beards and they would look clearly disfigured. Because for the, the, the Jewish people, fasting, as you, as you look in the references in Joel, Daniel, and Nehemiah, including in Esther, that, that mourning came with weeping, and humility, it was always about repentance, but there was, they would put on sackcloth, which is basically um, potato bags, and ash on their face, so they would be very physically uncomfortable, and in that time of fasting, that's when they felt that they were honoring God the most, but it became a show. It became something, they would walk around, it's like, oh, there's Joe, he's clearly fasting today. Look how terrible he looks. <laughs> As opposed to what Jesus recommends, that if you are going to fast, he says, tell very few people. It's not that you can't tell anybody. I think, I think if you're married and, and you're refusing to eat your wife's dinner, it'd probably be a really good thing to tell her you're fasting. Don't just, I'm not hungry. 
that's a whole nother prayer request that will be coming later. But in earnest, there should be a practice of prayer and fasting. There's, there's one little story as we close is, is there's a, um, Jesus sends out his disciples and they go about the country and Jesus goes on a spiritual retreat of his own and, and they come back and they're, and they're going through this town and this one dad comes in and says, my, my son convulses and your, your disciples couldn't cast out this demon and, and Jesus comes and speaks and the, the boy throws himself and, he, and he's thrashing and foaming at the mouth and Jesus prays and the demon leaves. Some translations, it's typically found in Mark. It says, some say, it, Jesus said, the disciples ask, why couldn't we do it? Jesus' answer, this demon, this type can only be done with prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting is spiritual warfare. It, it, it must be done with the mindset that we're going to war spiritually. This is, we are, again, as we talked a few weeks ago about putting on the armor of God, that we are prepping for battle. Christianity is a battleship, not a cruise ship. And we must be in an out mode of prayer in which we are praying bold prayers. So as you pray, my encouragement for you is to find some scriptures that you familiarize yourself with to pray. Uh, I, I was talking the other day when someone asked me about my prayers, and I said, 80% of what I pray is Scripture. Uh, be, because God's Word does not return void. Isaiah 55. So by knowing the Scriptures, it's not citing the chapter and verse, it's not knowing what book it's in, but just know, right, that God guards our heart with peace, and that He gives us, wants to give us joy, that there's different things that He gives us, and, and that's, what I pray is, is the scriptures. So my encouragement is take the time, create a list, learn to memorize some, and that as you pray, as my wife and I pray over our children, we pray that they grow in wisdom, favor, and stature. That comes from Luke 2.52, when Jesus grew in wisdom, favor, and stature. We pray the armor of God about them. We pray that their word, your word, the word of God, would be a lamp unto their feet and a light unto their path. That's, uh, Psalms 119, verse 105. And our prayer over our children are blessings from the Word of God because we know that the Word of God works. That it's living and active. That it has a purpose and it does not return void. So as you pray, how you pray, find a way to bring that voice and be bold about it. Because God wants to hear from you. Amen.